You can go ahead and have a seat as we prepare to enter into our time of worshiping the Lord through His Word. If um, you see the guys coming forward to pass out notes and pencils, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to put one of those in your hand too. So go ahead and raise your hand if you need the Word of God and we can get that to you so you can be reading along with us. Right. Many of you know we, uh, on Saturdays, have a wonderful ministry here called the Food Pantry where we uh, open up our doors and allow people from the community to come in and get food from us, people who are in, in need, uh, just trying to make ends meet and need some help. We are grateful to be able to have the opportunity to help them out. We've got a couple of great partners in that. Um, right now, Food Source, um, just over in Pittsburgh, uh, Costco right over here off Summersville Road, and the Contra Costa County and Solano County Food Banks are our partners in this. And uh, we often have more food than we need. Um, and so when that happens on Sunday mornings, if you go up to our fellowship hall, in that hallway right next to the kitchen uh, is a countertop and there will be food there for you to take. Um, we want anybody who could use it to put it to good use. Um, otherwise, if we can't find homes for it, it just goes into the garbage. So please feel free to go up and, and take that food. Um, we do want to ask you to do one thing that we haven't in the past. We're trying to uh, make sure that we're, we're conforming to the agreements that uh, help us to work with Costco and with Food Source. So for everybody who takes food from us, we need to have a name and a phone number. So when you take food, just register. There's a little clipboard there. You put your name and your phone number. And that is just, just simply there uh, to cover our bases in case there is a food recall or anything wrong in the, in the, uh, the suppliers that are giving us this food. They can let us know. We can call and say, hey, you might have gotten some yogurt or something that was bad. There's a recall in it. It's questionable. Throw it out. Um, so if you could just make sure that you sign your name and your number to that list, that would help us to stay in compliance. We also uh, wanted to let you know that if you are doing some spring cleaning in um, the weeks to come and you have some older clothes that are still good, but they're just not what you want to be wearing these days, or you just want an excuse to get new clothes, um, we would really benefit from having some more clothes in our food closet or our, our clothes closet as well. So go ahead, bag them up, bring them into church, and uh, Mary Clifton and her team will sort through those and see how we can put them to good use. Uh, so there's just a couple ways that you could be involved with uh, our ministry to those in our neighborhood that we're trying to share the love of Christ with. Well, we are meditating on the fifth chapter of Galatians today. And at this point in the letter, the Apostle Paul is beginning to really demonstrate to the Galatians how the doctrines and truths that he's been defending find their manifestation in the life of the believer. I appreciate this about the Apostle Paul. He never takes his eye off of right doctrine and proper thinking. He vigorously defends the truth of Scripture. He reasons and debates and contends for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is fully committed to loving God with all of his mind. But he also refuses to allow this theology to remain in the realm of the theoretical. To each church that he writes to, Paul consistently helps people to believe the truth about God and then in the very same breath makes it clear how they're to live in accordance to this truth that they have come to believe. Love God with your mind, but don't forget to love Him with your strength too. And so in chapter 5, verse 15, we read a few weeks ago, the Apostle Paul said, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so he pointed out this very practical tension that exists in the heart of everyone who wants to follow after Jesus Christ, that we have this history, this nature in us that wants to do what is contrary to the things of God. 
But when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we confess our sin to Him and receive Him as Lord and King, then this, this new hope enters into us and we have, by the power of the Spirit, the strength to walk in a different way. We can now live in ways that are pleasing to the Lord God. These two ways of life, living by the flesh or living by the Spirit, uh, are presented and then fleshed out in chapter 5. First, he addresses the life of the man that lives dominated by the desires of the flesh. That way of life is characterized by selfish and unloving behavior, the kind that isolates a person from God and isolates him from his neighbor and undermines his ability to love them well. Living by the flesh leads to such failures as sexual immorality and idolatry and strife, fits of anger, division, envy, drunkenness, and things like those. And so as we studied those a couple of weeks ago, we saw it wasn't a pretty picture. It's not the kind of life that anybody really desires to live. But there is a more excellent way. And it is accomplished only by a daily dependence on the Holy Spirit of our God who fills those who trust the Lord and find salvation in His work that He did on the cross. So last week, we looked at the first two fruits of the Spirit. These are the outflowing of a faithful heart. When somebody trusts in Jesus Christ and gives their life to Him, then the Holy Spirit begins to make them a new person. And you're going to start to see these markers, these identifiers of the true work of God in their life. And so last week, the two fruits of the Spirit that we looked at first were love. Love being that foundational fruit, which all the other fruits of the Spirit seem to flow out of. And then we also talked about joy, which reminded us that living by the Spirit is not some burden. It's not some sacrifice to live according to the Spirit, but rather it's the most satisfying and fulfilling way that we can live our lives when we know Christ. And today we will continue by studying two more of these very holy outcomes. But first I want you to turn your attention to verse 24 in chapter 5. After listing nine examples of spiritual fruit, he goes on to say, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. This war that we've described as being waged between the spirit and the flesh, that war is in a very real sense a fight to the death. What is naturally rebellious and hard-hearted in us must not only be minimized, it must be put to death by the Holy Spirit of God. Christian, have you crucified your flesh? When Paul says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires, he's showing us exactly how he reads the words of Jesus Christ. In recent scholarship, there have been many who have made this strange argument that Jesus came and shook the world up and then the Apostle Paul, this other strong personality, came and dovetailed off of Jesus but then took the church in his direction, took it in a totally different direction than Jesus wanted it to go. And I, I think this theory is completely nonsense. Paul was saved by Jesus and he preaches the truths that he learned from Jesus and from the Gospel. And we see evidence of, the, of that here as, as the things that Paul are preaching are mimicking the very things that Jesus taught to his twelve. So in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, Jesus himself said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So you can say, see here that as Jesus is preaching, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, 
Paul's not inventing anything new at all. He's simply using his own words to describe the very same things that Jesus taught when he was in the flesh walking this earth and doing the will of the Father. Where are we following Jesus when we take up our cross and we follow him? We're following him to his death. You take up our cross doesn't mean just take up your burden. It means be prepared to lay your life down in the way that Jesus laid his life down. And as he rose again on the third day, so too you find new life in this, this, this salvation that God has brought you to. Baptism, one of the two holy sacraments of the church, is a vivid picture of that death to the old life. When we bring somebody before you who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and when that individual confesses that they love the Lord and they're following after Him, we take them and we put them under the water in baptism. What does that mean? That is a picture of a burial. That is the old life that they used to live being put below the ground, buried with Christ through baptism. And as they are raised out of the water, we're symbolically showing you that they are born again, that they have a new life now in Jesus Christ, and that the old things have passed away, and they are now living according to the power of the Spirit. So they might be a new creation in Him, and that from that time forward, that the sanctification process is making them more and more like Jesus Christ. So there's a sense, friends, in which we are to pay, play the executioner to our sin. We're to put it to death. In order for the new to come, the old has got to be done away with. And so this new life that we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not just an amendment to the old way of life. It's a revolution. A revolution against a heart that rebels against God. It has been won in us by Jesus and now we are operating under a whole new constitution, a whole new set of guidelines for life. We don't do whatever our flesh wants us to do now, now we seek to please the Lord God and we do so by walking in that spirit. Paul had set the foundation for this idea in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You might remember studying this some weeks back. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we continue to work our way through the fruit of the Spirit this morning, let us keep in mind that God intends to bear these fruits in the lives of His children. But the weeds and the thorns that used to choke out the soil of our hearts need to go in order to make room for this fruitfulness that God has designed for us. The Christian life isn't about voting Republican or 10 steps to being better you or about simply avoiding hell. The Christian life is about glorifying God and becoming more like Christ His Son in every thought and in every deed. So we lay to rest our old sinful desires, and we trust the Spirit to bear new fruit in us. Fruits such as peace. Peace is the third fruit in the list of nine fruits of the Spirit that we're going to be studying here in the next few weeks. And in the Greek, this word peace is pronounced arene, arene, and it means a quietness of soul. It is not necessarily the absence of conflict in one's life. In fact, this peace is focused much more inside of a man than it is on the circumstances around that person. A person's ability to stay calm and steady through whatever circumstances may present themselves is fruit of the Spirit. It is a product of trusting in the Lord God. This spiritual fruit should reflect two distinct realities in the life of a Christian. First of all, it should reflect peace with God. 
peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one of my brothers, Pete, here this uh, week sent me an article uh, just kind of talking about what an interesting phenomenon is developing in our country right now where there's a whole industry being built off of meditation and peace apps. You can get an app for your phone where uh, you download the app, you pay a monthly subscription, and they send you uh, an inspirational quote each day to try to pick up your spirits. And there are, there are catalogs of recordings where you can watch people telling you how to be a better you. And there are uh, sequences of, of, of thought patterns where you can close your eyes and meditate and just listen as it walks you through these scenarios. You can daydream and it's supposed to calm you down and take away your anxieties and make you a less stressful person. They will suggest tactile exercises such as breathing techniques that are intended to reduce your stress. And people are paying monthly subscriptions for these apps in, in such a way that this is now a multi-billion dollar industry. Apps like Headspace and Calm and Shine in hopes of battling their personal restlessness. Is peace, is, is peace something that people want? Well, if Americans are willing to spend billions of their dollars on apps like this, it's safe to say that peace is a rare and desirable commodity in our culture. Everybody's stressed out. Everybody is, is full of anxiety and they want to be peaceful. They want to have calm in their soul. But here's the hard reality of it all. If Jesus isn't the focus of your life, then peace is an illusion. No amount of positivity or inspirational motivation will undo the cosmic state of our soul. The fruit of true peace will only come from one kind of a tree. Turn to Philippians uh, chapter 3 for a moment. Philippians is much like Galatians in that it is a letter from uh, the Apostle Paul to a church that he cares about. There's a fundamental crisis that is shared by all of humanity. And I'm not talking about the problem of hunger, which is a real problem, or poverty, which is serious, or global warming, which I have my doubts about. But every human being is born into conflict with the Creator who made them. That is the most impending crisis that infects all of mankind. By our sin and the sin that we inherit from the first man, Adam, we enter into this life at odds with God. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul's urging another church in much the same way that he's urging the churches in Galatia to walk by the Spirit. And he says, starting in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The many that Paul is referring to here is, is a broad term that describes anyone who has not been justified by faith 
in Jesus Christ. They are enemies to the cross. You see, there is no neutral party. There are some who say, well, I'm not sure what I believe yet. But that doesn't mean that the wrath of God is not on us. If we have not put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, then we are enemies to the kingdom of God. We are living in our sin. We are calling the shots for ourselves. We are trying to be what only God is supposed to be, the king of our own lives. Until the battle is fought and won for us on the cross by Jesus Christ, peace is incomplete in us. But for those who are in Christ, we may be at war with the flesh, but we are at peace with our God, and that makes all the difference in the world. If your relationship with God has not been put at peace by the work of Jesus Christ, then every other attempt at peace is at best a dangerous distraction from the inevitable reality that we face. Because even if I get my blood pressure down way low, and even if none of my hair falls out from anxiety, and even if everything's just smooth sailing for me, if I am not right with God, then there is a dark future waiting on the horizon for me. Friends, God is real. We don't come here to, to worship some make-believe fairy tale today. We come because we are here due to the creation of an infinite being who is powerful and good and right. This God is good, and that means that He cannot just stand and let sin dwell in the creation that He has made. He is powerful. So there's no way for that wickedness to prevail against Him. He will defeat it eventually. He's not going to tolerate our sin forever. He is going to judge us. God is going to judge every one of us. And if we don't have the righteousness of Jesus, that judgment is not going to go well. When we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that means that all of the debt that we owe to God for disobeying His rules and rebelling against His authority and ignoring Him and acting as if He didn't create us and doesn't deserve all praise, all of that accumulation of wrath that we should get from God, Jesus takes upon Himself His perfect spotless life that doesn't deserve to be punished. He voluntarily allows it to take our burden of sin. He goes to the cross he dies, he's crucified, and in death he fulfills the wages of sin, which is death. On the third day after he gave his life, Jesus rose from the grave, and in doing so showed his power over sin and over death. And all who trust in him are made new by that sacrifice. Our sin is put to death with him, and we stand before God guiltless. His wrath has been completely removed for those who are in Christ. Now, if you don't have that peace, if you don't have that relief of knowing that the future that awaits the wicked is not going to fall upon you, then I would urge you today to, to, to consider putting your faith and trust in Jesus. If you've known about this crisis for some time, you know that sin is real, but you've hesitated to deal with it, what are you waiting for? Is your life apart from God so wonderful and so peaceful that you don't want to trade it for a personal relationship with the God of the universe. 2 Corinthians chapter two verse, or chapter 5, verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And there is only one way for that to happen, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, once you are at peace with God, once Jesus does that incredible work that you can't afford to do for yourself, then you can begin to experience 
the second type of peace, which is not peace with God, but peace, the peace of God. The peace of God is described in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a wonderful peace that comes from knowing that the most important problem of life has already been solved for us on the cross at Calvary. And this God who rules over all things is now our protector, our defender, and no longer the one who will persecute us because of the sin that we did did wrongfully against Him. Those who have been brought near to God by grace can experience that peace within the circumstances of life, no matter whether they are difficult circumstances or no matter whether they're smooth sailings, this type of peace that comes only from God has a better quality, a greater depth, and a more lasting duration than any peace we can get from the world, no matter how fancy your app is. This is a calm security that provides solace to us in the darkest of circumstances. I want us all to understand how the peace of God is really dependent on our view of God Himself. The peace of God is not a resource that God gives to us like some sort of spiritual currency that we can spend how we like. True peace is a calmness that is rooted in the right understanding that since God is sovereign, He is trustworthy, since He is on the throne, I really have nothing to worry about. If you think little of God, you will struggle to have enduring peace. Your theological understanding of who God is will impact whether you walk through this life anxious, insecure, restless, full of fear, or whether you can be filled with the peace of God. Think about some of these wrong doctrines and how they would affect your ability to have peace. The Apostle Paul has preached against one of them. There was a group that had infiltrated Galatia and said, Listen, Jesus is important. He's essential. You have to have Jesus, but you also have to fulfill the law of Moses. So in a sense, they were saying, yes, salvation is a two-part ordeal. It is Jesus plus your works which make you qualified to get into heaven. But Paul has shown us that that is wrong, that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, that it isn't anything that we can earn by our own works or our own deeds. But if you fall into that wrong view of God, that He is a God who saves only partway and that you have to do the rest of the work, how's that going to affect your peace? You're going to be constantly wondering if you've done enough. You're going to be constantly worried about whether your deeds match up to God's standards. You're not going to find anything in Scripture that says, okay, here's the level, here's the line of holiness. As long as you can make it over that line, you're good. But if you cross under that line, you're in trouble. So if you believe that your salvation is God's work plus your work, then you're in a constant state of anxiety. There's no way of knowing that you are pleasing to the Lord God. It is only when you see the truth of Scripture and recognize that we are saved apart from our work, that God does all of the work for us and then brings us into this new relationship by which we can live holy, that all of the credit belongs to Him and all of our future rests in His hands, not our own. Here's another one. Have you ever heard of open theism before? Open theism is a theology that's gaining popularity right now. It means that God knows all things that have happened. Open theism argues that God is on the line of time just like we are. He knows everything that has happened in the past and everything that's happening right now, but just like you and me, He's waiting to find out what will happen tomorrow. And when when it happens, 
He'll react to it and he'll do the right thing and he'll move and maneuver and adjust and adapt however he needs to to continue to, to preserve us. This is, a, this is a doctrine that denies the omniscience, the all-knowing power of God. Now, people like this theology. I think they like it because it makes God more like us. It makes us be able to relate to Him more. And it means that God is waiting for us to make decisions and to, to, to make our moves before He decides what He's going to do. He's reactive, not proactive. But think about how much anxiety this puts in the heart of man. If you truly believe that God doesn't know what tomorrow holds, what if it holds something He can't handle? What if, it, what if it goes a direction he wasn't anticipating? What happens if you're not the person in 20 years that you are now? How is he going to react to that? How can you have any sort of real assurance in God if he cannot see the future, and if he does not know already what is happening? See, we praise a sovereign God here, a God who knows all things. And he looks out down the vast column of time, and he's not reacting to people's decisions. He is determined to make his will done. He is a good God that is strong and mighty. He's not waiting for us. He knows what He needs to do. That is a God we can trust. That is a God, if the universe is in His hands, I can go to sleep peacefully at night knowing that He's taking care of things. Here's, here's another thought that can affect our fears. If God cannot preserve us once we're saved, if there is a chance that through my bad deeds, I might do something that would anger God so much that I would lose my salvation, then I've always got to worry about what I'm going to do next. I don't always plan out my failures. Sometimes they just happen. And what happens if my failure is too great? And God says, well, enough of that one. I, I thought that was a good guy, but no, you've crossed the line. We've got to believe in a God who saves us and keeps us. He preserves our heart. And knowing that this God is mighty enough to preserve us from even our own flesh and our own sinful desires can give us an incredible amount of peace, knowing that I don't have to make sure that all my steps are perfect. I still desire to, to live a perfect life, but I know that I won't. And now I don't have to wring my hands at night wondering if the mistake that I made was too much for God to forgive. See, the things that you think about God affect your peace drastically. And the bigger your God is, the more at peace you are because you realize that this God has control and He is not going to fail you. This limited capacity to trust God will seriously impale your chances at true peace if you fall into wrong doctrines. That's part of the reason why Paul contends so ferociously for the truth among his people because he loves them and he wants them to experience this wonderful fruit of a peaceful heart. So friends, when you are struggling and you're having a hard time with peace, and anxiety seems to grip you, and you can't stop worrying about the next step you need to take, or whether you're going to make the right or the wrong decision about your future, one of the best things you can do is remember what great God you serve. And you do that by going back to His Word, by letting His revealed truth speak to you about His character, about His nature. Be reminded about what He has told us about who He is. Remember verses like Romans 8.28 which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. What does that mean? Just love God and trust Him. Remember that He is amazing. And all the, the pieces of your life, whether they seem dark or light, whether they seem painful or easy, He is somehow working all of these things out for our ultimate good. 
if we can remember that he is the one orchestrating these things, that he is the author of time, then it can do a great deal of good to our soul and help us to bear this fruit of peace. What about Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34? Remember this passage of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if any of you keep your note sheets in your Bibles. You don't have to. You can throw them away if you want. It doesn't hurt my feelings or anything. But if you find yourself in a rut and you can't seem to get out of your anxiety, if worry is gripping your heart and keeping you like a prisoner, go back through your Bible and find the note sheet where it teaches you, look at these passages of Scripture so that God can remind you that He's sovereign, that He's in control. Matthew 6, verse 31 through 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who are lost and don't have Jesus, the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we see here a picture of a God who, he's got his hands on everything. If he can make sure the sparrow uh, in the air is, is, cl is clothed in righteousness, is fed, if he can take care of the lilies of the field, of course he's going to take care of you. You bear his image. You are the pinnacle of his creation. So of course he's going to look after you. We can be reminded of Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, that this God that we trust is not a God who's ever going to abandon us or leave us. He's not a God that we can even run away from. It says in verses 7 through 10, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It may feel at times like you are alone. It might feel difficult to face the circumstances of your life, especially thinking that no one else understands what you're going through, but God is right by your side. If you are His child, He is carrying you through. He is with you, helping you, overcoming this fear if you just realize that He is good. Many of you have been praying for my family. I had a big loss over the Christmas season. On Christmas Eve, my, my favorite cousin passed away. Name's James. He's a youth pastor in Arkansas, 36 years old. Just had a heart attack, just like that. Uh, the kind of guy that was constantly sharing the gospel with others. Huge evangelistic gifting, uh, amazing guy. And his his wife Rebecca is a wonderful woman as well. They got a five-year-old daughter named Mercy. And so it's been tough. But I was on the phone with Rebecca just the other day, and we spoke. And the Lord is just using her tragedy in some amazing ways. Um, she shared about how, even though she's heartbroken because they were the best of friends, the kind of two people where you think, yeah, God really must have put those two together because they're a perfect match. So not having him with her has just been heartbreaking. But the fact that she has Christ means that she's got the strength she needs to carry on and to continue to praise him and to give him glory. So she met with the youth group and was talking with them after James's death. And she said, listen, you might not ever lose a spouse like I've lost a spouse. You might not go through something just like I have, but life will betray you at some point or another. What you think is your happiness is going to go away. It's going to break. It's going to fall apart. And in that moment, if you think, oh no, I better run to Jesus now 
and you get out your phone and you Google verses that have to do with hardship and suffering, those passages will do you some good. But they won't do you nearly the kind of good that they would if those verses are already in the heart that you walk with every day. If you have been striving with the Lord God, if you have been seeking Him, if you've been loving Him dearly, then when that thing that was such a joy to you is taken away, then the true joy of Christ is still strong. And you'll draw from that resource readily, from the top of your head, from the bottom of your heart. God will show you the truth you need to get through it. And she shared with these kids, it's not the, the stock verses about suffering and, and hardship that are getting her through, it's, it's other verses that she's been living by, verses that she was memorizing with her husband, verses that, that were in her daily devotions that have just popped up to her and, and spoken to the fact that she doesn't have to be in despair, that she doesn't have to give up just because her husband is gone, that she can not only survive this, but still have joy in her heart. She can be present for her little girl who needs her. She could be a testimony to the church that is looking to support her through this tough time. So these verses of Scripture that I share with you, they're not just verses to go to in a, in a crisis situation. They're verses that we put inside of our heart and we think about God through these truths that He has revealed to us. And when, when the Word is foundational to us and what we think about God, then we are much more strong in times of hurt. We can have peace that surpasses the worldly understanding that this that those who don't have Jesus Christ try to live through. Once a follower of Jesus has been ushered into peace with God, the peace of God will be the natural fruit that is produced in their lives. You might even recall the Beatitudes where in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus is describing those who are blessed to be a part of his kingdom. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You see, the peace, the fruit of peace, is not just how we feel when things are going wrong, but it's also the peace that we work towards in the lives of the people around us. If you're going to bear spiritual fruit of peace, that means you're working towards peace for others. You're desiring for them the peace that you have in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're not bashful about what we believe here at First Family. Um, we don't try to hide any of that stuff. It's all on our website. It's what we preach from the pulpit. And so if you go on our website, there's a document called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and it basically outlines a framework of the theologies that we teach. And one of those um, points in the Baptist Faith and Message is about peace and war. And so Article 16, I just want to read it to you today. These are some good tools that we use to direct our teaching and, and to help us to have a good concept. And there's dozens of scriptures that are referenced in, um, in these, these articles, uh, uh, in this declaration of, of our faith. It says, It is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness. In accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ, they should do all in their power to put an end to war. The true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of His teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical applications of His law and lo law of love. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. And I say amen to that. What that says is that we care about the people around us, and we want to help them find peace. But it also makes it very clear that the solution to that is not more food at the food pantry. The solution to that is not better homeless outreach. The solution to that is not just some great counseling. The solution to the true crisis that leads to things like war and like poverty and that leads to things like abuse in the family and the breakdown of the family unit 
It all stems from not having Christ. So the gospel has got to be at the forefront of our desire to help other people understand and attain peace. If I really want peace for you, I've got to talk to you about Jesus Christ. So peace is a very important fruit of the Spirit. Fruit number four is patience. Patience uh, is pronounced in the Greek language makruthumia, makruthumia. And it means the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. So I want you to notice that definition there. Look at that for a minute. It's more than just tolerating the bad things you don't want to have to deal with in life. It's not just putting up with stuff that you have to wait for. True patience involves control over one's impulse to be frustrated, to be angry when life does not adhere to our desired timeline. According to the reformer John Calvin, I love what he had to say about patience. He says, to be patient is to take everything in good part and to not be easily offended. For many, this is the one fruit on the tree that we would rather not bear. Yeah, I'll, I'll be a loving person. I'll be kind and gentle and peaceable, but when it comes to patience, I'd rather not have to be patient. For all of America's virtues, we have systematically sabotaged the average citizen's capacity for patience. A good percentage of the products that are sold to you day by day are pitching their usefulness, at least in part, based on the time that you save by using them. So who wants internet with the second fastest download speeds? Anybody? No, everybody wants the fastest internet. Want They want burst speeds. We've got to like invent new superlatives and adjectives to describe our internet because we want it faster and faster at all times. I can go into my house and there are at least four devices taking up room in my shelves that are there to help me cook things that I could cook with regular pots and pans, but faster. So I got a rice cooker and I got a pressure cooker and I got a crock pot, all these different things that are going to make me cook things faster and more efficiently so I can do more with my time. Commuters on our freeways will pay a premium through Fast Track every day to drive in a lane on the freeway that will be slightly less congested than the lane to the right of them. They pay money for that all the time. Why? Because patience is not easy, is it, friends? It is not easy to sit back and wait and to just let, let the Lord dictate the pace at which we live our lives. Patience is not easy. But is it an important skill for the Christian life? Think about how integral patience is to interacting with God. You pray to Him, and He doesn't just immediately respond with words from heaven. You pray, with, pray to Him, and then you read His Word, and you seek answers. You pray to Him, and you wait. You wait for God to orchestrate life how He chooses to orchestrate it. If you can't wait, then prayer is going to be a very frustrating enterprise for you, because God operates on His own timing. And yet, Yet we're told that prayer is essential. It's very important to us. So we need to be seeking Him and asking. We need to be trying to find out His will. But we have to be willing to wait for Him to reveal it to us. We wait eagerly for new bodies. Romans 8.23 says that this body that you have right now, this body that's failing and is, has got its faults and its limitations, there's a better one in store for you. Praise the Lord for that. But you don't get it here. You don't get it now. You get it in heaven. So you've got to put up with whatever illness you're dealing with. You've got to put up with whatever handicap you've got. You've got to put up with your bad eyesight or your, your weak singing voice or all the things that make us frustrated with our bodies. You've got to put up with that for a time. You've got to wait. 
Because your heavenly body, you don't get that until you fulfill your citizenship in heaven. Which is another thing that we are waiting for. We're waiting to assume our citizenship in heaven, according to Philippians 3, 20-21. You are a sojourner right now. You're in a, a land that you don't belong. Once you've been saved, you're no longer a real resident of the earth. You belong in heaven. But God leaves us here because He's got goals for us here. He's got plans for our lives. And so we patiently wait for that day when we can be in perfect union with God, when the, 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 the salvation that Christ has won for us can be totally realized in us, and the sin nature that we still have lingering in our souls can be removed from us once and for all. I wait eagerly for that. Christians have to wait for Christ's return. He came once and it was glorious, it was beautiful, and He will come again. Revelation 22 Verse 20 tells us that he's on the way. But as much as we would love for him to come, Lord, quickly, it could be another thousand years before he does. It could be 2,000 years. We don't know the time or the hour. So we must keep that hope but be willing to wait. Patience is an essential skill for the Christian who wants to live in harmony with his God. And again, if you do not have a high view of God, if your God is small or limited is, or is tainted with bad doctrine and so you're making Him look more like a man than like a God, then you're going to struggle to bear this fruit of patience. Who's the master of time? God is the master of time. No one controls time like God controls time. If He is the master of time, then we can afford to be patient. There is no real risk in it if we are on God's side. If He has redeemed us to His family and He's the one who controls the clock. God created time along with all the markers that teach us about time and govern its passage. He created the sun. created the moon. He created the calendars. If He wants to stop the sun in the sky as He did in the book of Joshua, He can do that because He is the one who's in control. He has an intricate plan for how time is going to unfold and tell His story and it will come to pass. God is Himself extraordinarily patient but not for necessarily the same reasons that we are. We are patient because we don't have a choice. <laughs> we're either impatient or we're patient because we've come to know that we don't control time like God does. And so it is rightfully humble for us to say, Lord, thy will be done. I'm going to be patient and wait for you. But God is patient, not because he doesn't control time, but because he has no need to worry about time. He is powerful over time. He has ordained to work the things that he wants to work according to his will and nothing can oppose him or derail his plan. Psalm 90 verses 1 through 2 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Time is not a big deal to the one who has always existed and always will. He is Alpha and Omega Time is no obstacle for our God. So what then should I do, friend, if I can't be patient, if I'm struggling with this anxiety and this worry? I'm going to give you two diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself that might help you through this process. And then I'm going to share some scripture with you. First of all, I think you should ask yourself, why am I insisting on now? Why now? Why do I need it right away? Why am I in such a hurry? Do I think that God owes me expediency? Do I believe, somewhere hidden deep in my heart, that I've been such a good boy or a good girl that God would not be doing His job well if He doesn't hurry up and make it on my timeline? 
Because friends, that is terrible personal misconception. God doesn't owe us anything at all. For those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we live in this constant state of amazing and beautiful grace whereby you are always getting what you don't deserve to get. God is letting you live. He is providing for your needs. He is healing. He is overcoming. He is providing for you. And so how can we demand from God something that we have not earned, something that we don't deserve? What we deserve from God, rightfully, is judgment. He does not give us what we deserve, and we should praise God for that. But if I've gotten into the mindset that it's so common in this world, it's easy to fall into that pattern of, why not me? Why can't I have what I want right now? Then we need to step back and get some perspective and realize that God has every right to draw things out as long as He needs to. Why am I insisting on now? Do I think that God will run out of time? Do I question His ability to solve problems when they need to be solved? Do I doubt that He can? God is not stifled by time whatsoever. And if something needs to be done, if it's in His will, it will happen. Whether now or later doesn't matter. He's going to make it happen if it needs to happen. Do I think that I can learn all of my lessons apart from experience? This is one of the things we don't, don't often take into account is that we don't always learn things quickly, well. Human beings live in the confines of time. And you might be better at this than me, but I have to experience something for a time before it really sinks into my heart, before it becomes a part of who I am. Somebody can describe instructions on how to get from one place to another. I'm the worst when it comes to directions. And I might have my man card taken away for this. But if it wasn't for the GPS in my phone, I wouldn't show up here half the time uh, on a Sunday morning. I get lost all the time. And people will sometimes say, oh, it's easy how to get there. And then they give me four simple instructions. And, and I can't get it. I'm, but by, the, by instruction two, I'm lost again. Because I need time. I need to go that place several times and, and see what it looks like on the way there before I start to finally figure out what that route is supposed to be like. I, I need time to learn. And most human beings are like that, right? We need time to learn. We don't just automatically remember things right off the top of our heads. So it is proud and arrogant of us to ignore the fact that God, because of His great love for us, makes it take time so that we'll actually learn. God is not just there to give us what He wants. He's there to grow us. And growth takes time. You are in a constant state of discipleship, friends, and that is training. Training takes repetition. It takes time. It takes endurance. And it takes patience. Here's another question you can ask yourself to help you think through your anxieties and your worries and your desire for everything to happen right now. Ask yourself, what do I stand to lose if the Lord provides for me right away? What do I stand to lose? Because we always think about what we're going to gain if we get what we want right now. It's obvious. We're going to get that thing that we've always wanted. But what is something that God wants to give to you? Maybe you don't even know to ask for it yet. And the waiting is part of that. My wife and I are in the process of fostering a little baby girl to adoption. And I remember distinctly and vividly trying to prepare my heart to be ready to wait. Because the foster care system is a is a real humbling experience. You have no power when you're a foster parent. You are, in the eyes of the state, a glorified babysitter. and They don't feel the need to tell you any details about anything. And if they choose to give you information, sometimes it's not always right. 
So we tried to gear ourselves up for that and say, you know what, when we get certified and we're ready to receive a placement, it's going to take some time. We should, be, we should be calm about this. We shouldn't rush. And then as soon as we were ready to go, we wanted that baby now. We wanted a baby girl. And every time the phone would ring, and it was one of the social workers, like, it's the time, it's the time. God's going to give us what we've been praying for. This is a holy thing. God wants us for us. And we would pick up the phone, and they'd say, we've got a baby girl. And then less than 24 hours later, they would just pull the rug right out from underneath us. And that little baby girl suddenly had an aunt that wanted to take her in. Or that little baby girl suddenly was going to be put in a different county. Or that little baby, there was something wrong every time that would keep us from getting that placement. And two, three, four different scenarios play out, and it begins to wear on our patience. We had prayed to be prepared, but man, we started to get anxious about this. Will we ever get a little child to care for? And there were several of these little children. We knew enough about them to want them. You know, there was a, there was a, a little girl that was, it was a, a baby who was born to a homeless woman. And they were living in a can, an encampment, and there was drugs all around this baby all the time, and she was too cold. And so they had taken her away from mom and they needed to put, and we were thinking how beautiful it would be to be able to give that child a home. We could, we could bring that kid into our family. We could solve that child's problems. But no, it wasn't meant to be. And so it felt, it was five months of waiting before we actually got a placement and it felt like 15. It felt like forever. Patience was not easy for us in those times. But looking back on it now, every time I see that little girl on the floor and she looks up and sees me, and her face lights up and she smiles and I think, praise God, it's you. Praise God that I had to wait for five months because you're the right one for us. You belong in this family. And I just love the knowledge of God that is so perfect that even when we fight against him, he doesn't say, oh, okay, I'll give you what you want. He says, I know what is best for you. Be quiet. Wait. Let me be your God now we can't imagine any other child in our home. Like, that's the one for us. What do I stand to lose if the Lord provides, me, uh, provides for me right away? And you, I don't expect you to be able to answer that, but I expect you to be able to think about this God that you love who is bigger than you and knows every scenario. He knows what is best. So if he's keeping what seems like a good thing from you, there's a reason for it. Perhaps there is something better that he's earning for you through that time. Be patient. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. When it seems like you just can't wait any longer, look that verse up. Think about it. Commit it to memory. So that you'll remember there's good reason for God to make you wait. James 1, verses 3 through 4. This is from the New King James Version because of the wording choice, I think, fits our scenario really well. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's not easy to do, but here's why. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. When you are tested by circumstances in life, it produces in you a greater patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Your patience is going to be an important part of your discipleship. It's how you are growing in the Lord. Strive with Him. Endure with Him. It's for your good. In Psalm 25, verses 1 through 5. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. 
They shall be ashamed who wantonly are treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Is he worth the wait? Is it worth it to see the will of God? Is it worth it to wait and to continue to pray, to persevere in that, to continue asking, but to wait and to know that if his answer is not yet, then it's the best answer he could give to you. He is worth the wait, my friends. God is the model of patience, of course. There is no one more patient than him. And oh, how it must grieve the heart of the Lord to wait to deal with sin. His fundamental nature is good. So he must judge sin, and yet he sits and waits for a time. He allows sin to be a part of this beautiful creation that he has made. He allows sin to affect human beings, which are made in his image, that bear his very image. It must be so grievous to his heart to wait, to not judge right away. But if he did judge right away, how many people that we love, that we care about, that we're praying for, would not have salvation right now? God is patient. He is kind. He is why we have the fruits of the Spirit. As we bear these fruit to Him, we are simply trying to be, in some ways, what God is, to reflect that glory and that goodness in Him since He is patient and long-suffering with us and gives us this opportunity to respond to His gospel. So too should we be patient as He unfolds His story in lives of believers like you and me. Would you bow your heads for a word of prayer as we call the band up? They're going to be leading us in one more song before we go. But let's thank the Lord for what He's taught us today and ask that He would settle these truths in our heart, that He would help us to know what is good and to want to bear these fruit according to His glory. God, we thank You. We lift You up right now to be magnified in our presence. We know, God, that there is no other God, that though man has tried to invent other versions or forms of God so that they would have somebody to worship that reminds them more of themselves. Lord, you are the one and only. And you have a plan. And that plan will not wait for our opinion, God. That plan is, is going to unfold. God, we thank you for being mighty. We pray that we would rejoice in your power today, that we would not be bitter towards you because we're not in charge, but rather we would be at peace because you're the one who rules. Father, if we were, if we were to actually have the throne over all of creation, Creation would be in deep trouble because none of us can handle that kind of authority and power. So be the one who knows what is best. Help us to have patient hearts, Lord God. And help us to rejoice in the ways that you bear these fruits in and through our lives. I know that these fruits are not just for our own benefit. So God, help us to bless one another as we are loving and joyful, peaceful and patient towards one another in the context of your church and in the communities that we live. May the lost see that and want to know what it's like to bear up underneath the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you for all of these things. In the holy name of our Savior Jesus, amen.